Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host and I am very excited to be joined today by Jeff Burns. Jeff is a graduate student at the University of Michigan in biomechanics and also a world-class ultra runner who has multiple top five finishes at the World 100K Championships. We wanted to have him on today to talk a little bit of running and a little bit of science. We're going to get back into the science today, which we have kind of left to the side a little bit recently. So very excited to welcome in ultra running athlete Jeff Burns. Jeff, welcome to the Pain Cave. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, how's everything going? Where Where are you now? Are you still located in Michigan? Yes. So I live, work, study, um, exist in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Supposedly a great training slash outdoors town. Yeah, it is. Um, I think, you know, objectively speaking, the greatest um, <laughs> city in the world. Um, no, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. And it truly is. You know, in the Midwest, most people, you know, you might not think of it as like total, you know, you know, the running, uh, you know, idyllic training place of like, you know, Boulder, Flagstaff, whatever. But it truly is just a wonderful place in terms of being this fantastic community within the town. You know, it's very diverse, you know, cultural, intellectual community, but very small and contained with the university. And then outside, it's just, you know glorious beautiful rivers roads and it's just very you know undulating terrain and you look at you know in terms of the running the running connection it's just uh, i don't want to say an inexplicable hotbed because it totally has the the per there are personalities that drew a lot of great runners here um but you have just a long history you know centering around you know ron warhurst uh, sure. coach longtime coach and um legendary coach of you know olympians from room from brian deemer who won a bronze and steeplechase medal in the 80s yep um and of course like you know greats like kevin sullivan um nate brandon and you know nick willis still lives here these um, are uh, these are the guys that i grew up following and uh they were like a little bit ahead of me in school you're you're speaking my language i love those old yeah English guys so yeah so total total titans and ron you know still to this day ron's retired now but runners still flock here to train under him and it's truly i think part of part of the you know actually one of my training partners kind of coined the term the the terroir of uh of warhurst and that's what ann arbor is it's just <laughs> these you know beautiful steep hills and you know long grinding roads um mm -hmm. but it's made for made for great great middle distance runners but also great long distance runners um you know greg meyer won the boston marathon sure. um uh, uh, and, alan, uh, alan webb famously there for a year um yep documented exactly. in in, uh, in Chris Lear's great book. Are you from the Midwest originally? Yes. So I'm actually from Northern Michigan, from Traverse City. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And did you Wonderful. run, did you run uh, undergrad? Yeah. Yep. So I actually, I was a walk-on here. Um, walked on and, and had the pleasure of running under Ron for his last two years here. So, oh, that must have been an experience. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I consider that to be one of the the best gifts you know the world has ever given me it was like the opportunity um i learned so much not just running under him but the environment that he created and had on the team the guys that just being in that I means truly this you know a very elite culture of runners but not not so in the sense of like you know what you would think of like um from the very technical side but just that the air of how you went around you know day-to-day -day business of of 
training of, of just under the assumption that like the expectation was, was absolute excellence, right. and absolute elite level. And it's just fun to be a part of that and, and just observe, you know, his craft. Cause he truly is somebody who, you know, I think in many ways coaches, the great coaches of the world, um, are truly ahead, <laughs> ahead of the physiologists, or maybe you could call them the preeminent physiologists because they've had, you know, they are the great coaches because they've studied thousands of runners, you know, and, and tweaked their, you know, methods over the years to adapt to that. So it's funny because you can look at anything that like, you know, Ron does, or maybe other great coaches too, like a Canova or V Hill or any of those guys. And you look at their, their kind of prototypical workouts and it's like the science then like later, like explains and arrives at why those are, you know, so excellent for certain physiological adaptations. Right. Where they've come to and, it by just thousands of athletes and trial and error and everything yeah, else. Yeah. Like great, great example. In, in Ann Arbor, we have Harvard Hill is famous 270 meter hill. That's um, it's, it's really steep, but it's not like, you know, it's not a absolute wall. It feels like a wall, but it's probably <laughs> 10 to 12% grade, maybe 12% grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite steep to run up. It's like just that level of steepness that like you can't efficiently efficiently run up it right. to really drive up it. And it's like, you know, Ron arrived at that because he found the hill and he was like, you know, this hill is hard as, you know, blank. I don't know if I can swear on podcast. <laughs> yeah, go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like this hill is hard as shit. You know, it's like great, great, great for training. Perfect. And then like later, you know, decades later, you might have some some paper that comes out, you know, and something that says like, ah, you know, running for 60 seconds at a 10, 10% hill grade is, you know, proper for, you know, <laughs> right. hamstring and gluteal activation. It's like, ah, well, where, where you could just find the hill that's hard as shit and get at it. But yeah. So anyways, it's that kind of, you know, physiological intuition that is just wonderful to observe that in practice. Right. Right. Um, so cool. And, uh, before we get in uh, any further into the running stuff, where, what are your thoughts on Coach Harbaugh and moving forward? Are you excited or is? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh my goodness. I, I like, know. I know it, he's a bit of a controversial <laughs> figure in in Michigan circles. Oh, I I don't even know if he's a controversial figure in Michigan circles. I think I think the media the media just knows that Michigan fans like to get riled up, so they'll like. <laughs> so somebody who's not at all in a Michigan circle might say like, "Oh, is Harbaugh out? Is he done?" But if you talk to anybody like that's a, a Michigan fan, it's like, yes, Harbaugh is like, you know, the once and future king. He's, <laughs> I mean, famously a Michigan man, right? Shem Beckler always wanted a Michigan man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. So, Good. so very exciting. I mean, it's one of those things where it's, it's funny that they're disgruntled, but I mean, the team was you know a top 10 team oh they were really really good this year (laughs) they were really good this year oh man like oh you know he's he's not doing it you know quite right it's like guys guys i'll i'll take this season especially especially if this is a disappointment right (laughs) right (laughs) right but this i mean that's um, how much that that's how much the osu game means i guess right i mean you go 11 and 1 but you lose to osu every year and there's something that sticks in people's craw about that yeah that would actually be the one thing that i i i detest you know, I, I hate Ohio State with every fabric of my being. Like, I don't I don't own red clothing. Um, and but the one thing is I, I respect how much they hate us. And I feel like um, Jim Tressel and Urban Meyer before Harbaugh did a better job at, like, hating and placing utmost importance on victory here. Where I feel right. like Michigan, there's there's a little bit more. There's less of a kill instinct in those players. It's like you could almost you could almost like 
stereotype it to this like <laughs> the intellectuals and the brutes <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and and michigan's like just can't quite rationalize the irrational hatred but that's what i love about college sports is it allows me an outlet for irrational hatred and that's directed entirely at ohio state so you won't wear red clothing what do you do about ultra because most of their kit is red isn't it uh, well, we were fortunate enough to get uh, black and white singlets this year. Oh, and previous okay. years where the team kit was red, I actually had my own printed up on <laughs> blue. <laughs> Did you really? That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that you asked that question because when that when the kit arrived in the mail, I looked at it like, <laughs> Just like no way. <laughs> I don't compete in sports in red. The one exception, the one exception I would make was like team for Team USA. We had red shorts okay. two years ago, and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't think uh, I have any other option here. That is like the red shorts. It's for the country. Yeah, yeah. It's for the country, so it's you know it's under the blanket of everyone, so I can get on board with that. But other than that, no, it's a terrible color. All right. Well, <laughs> dash it from the college, college spectrum if I could. Um, I wanted to talk about the first thing I want to talk about, really. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. I've been a fan of yours for quite some time. Uh, you. But, you know, I, I had uh, just read Alex Hutchinson's article uh, regarding your research in Outside Online, and I, I was really intrigued by it. And uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this paper that was recently published in the Journal of Applied Physiology about running cadence and, and stride rate. Yeah, And uh, it was a really, really interesting study you did, uh, I think, with competitors at the 2016 100K championships. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And uh, it really, I don't want to say challenged a lot of the preconceived notions that we hold about stride rate and cadence, but it, I think it definitely raised some interesting questions about variability and the importance of kind of this dictum of a stride rate of 180 uh, strides per minute being, mm-hmm. you know, the, the be all and end all of running form. So. Tell us a little bit about kind of where the the impetus for this study came from and what you did and what you found. Yeah, so going actually going into it, I was I was inspired by the race itself because we show up at the race and or like right before it, you know, we get the get the map of the course and and of course being a championship style race, it's it's looped. Sure. And we get there and it's a completely flat road loop of 10 kilometers and it's a 100 kilometer race so that's 10 loops of 10k and then just the you know experimental designer in me the scientist is <laughs> just looks at this i'm like this this is a beautiful repeated measure study design <laughs> like we have it's so controlled it's on the roads it's flat there's no elevation gain we have official splits you know every 10 kilometers right and like so it's just it's beautiful. Like something needs to be studied here. Right. And so at first pass, I'm like, well, you could just do a simple like pacing study or something like that. But, you know, it's like, well, there's got to be something. Are we, you know, are we record? Is there anything we're recording in this? Or is there any like you know, camera footage or anything that you could get something mechanical um, from it? And then it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, you know, most of us, most of us are wearing accelerometers on our wa- on our wrists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So started looking more into that to see if it was feasible to study or, you know, whether it was a robust tool and found some validation studies that convinced me of, you know, its kind of efficacy and then did my own, you know, kind of limit testing of the device, you know, in our own lab to see what it was and kind of understand and and realized it was for running. Our watches are really accurate um, measurements of cadence. So I thought, okay, this could be cool if I could get get any data from the race on this so that's right. kind of how it evolved um and so at that point 
then, you know, put in the IRB to like go back and, you know, contact participants in the race and decided to select on the top 25 men and women to keep it as, um, you know, the most, the kind of the highest performers, the most elite people in in the race to, you know, really study what that, um, I guess that distinct population would look like, um, to control it as best as I could. Mm -hmm. So looked at those So reached out to, you know, 50 athletes in total. And that in itself was, was kind of a comical fun challenge because, a lot of the participants um, didn't, I mean, spoke varying degrees of fluency in English sure. with some not speaking it at all. So there was a lot of like Google, Google translate going on, um, you know, whether it was into like Japanese or <laughs> or Italian <laughs> or something, um, just trusting blindly that, <laughs> that it was conveying my point and expressing, you know, whatever. Um, so anyways, Got that and, you know, reached out and after that finally got data and started crunching it and using the actual race splits um, to overlay time. So then, yeah, started working on the data to pick it apart. And, um, you know, I going into the going into the study, like you said, there is that, you know, kind of magical number 180 that's often tossed around. But I think for anybody who who has dug into any of the, you know, Research, I would say step, I mean, step frequency has been studied since people started studying running, but very specifically in relation to economy and other, um, you know, biomechanical force variables, stuff like that, you know, since the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, a lot of a lot of work's been done. Anybody who's studied that has kind of known that it's people select an energetically optimal step frequency for themselves. Now you could you know, then play, you know, go into the argument of like, well, maybe, you know, you could train at a certain one and then become more optimal later at another one. Right. Um, but that 180 number that's popped up in recent years, actually, you know, it's, it stemmed just from Jack Daniels's observation. Um, right at the LA uh, games, I think. Yes, exactly. Um, and then it got, I, I think it was Chi running like Danny Dreyer and that movement, um, took that and popularized it and it's just this i think it it was one of those things that just it was like almost this pop pop science that that persisted because of its simplicity right um it's so easy to measure and it's like it kind of has this this sexy idea that like you know increase your stride rate and you know you decrease the you know, like it just kind of makes first level intuitive sense of like right oh you just take fewer or more steps per minute and it you know, decreases loading rate, whatever. And, you know, or like more evenly spaces the loadout over that amount of time. Right. And it's like, you could explain that in like, you know, one or two sentences to somebody not, and not consider it further, not consider, you know, the increased levels of, you know, muscle activation and other things that are required to do that structures that might now fatigue more quickly. Right. Um, like, yeah. So anyways, so that persisted. And, and so, was, you know, going into it, I, I went into the study thinking like, OK, I one, I doubt, you know, I doubt all of these people are running right around 180 steps per minute um, Two, I I'm, you know, I'm expecting there to be some, you know, a speed influence here as well as like some sort of anthropometric um, thing going on. The one thing right. I didn't know was how some of the other factors would would influence. And that's so that's what we looked to capture was was as many factors as you could kind of grossly 
measure or understand about somebody and see how you could model the stride frequency. Right. Right. So, you know, the, the, the 180 kind of, like you said, that kind of magic number, I think stood out almost as like, um, almost, a uh, an, an achievable goal or like an aspirational goal for a lot of people. And, you know, as you said, it, it seemed to make intuitive sense. Now, now did the previous studies that have looked at that sort of thing bear out that, the loading forces were decreased or that there were was some sort of reduction in injury risk as people, you know, quote unquote, optimize their stride rate towards that 180 number? Or was that just more of a theoretical thing that never really panned out? Yeah. So there have been um, a handful of studies that have shown um, kind of varying degrees of that. There is one one study that I think did show a reduction in vertical loading rate as people increased step frequency. Um, and I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, uh, I can pull the paper here, um, that, so that is like, that's something that again is, has, is not like completely made up that does happen. Um, but what, what they, what, you know, that study shows that, but what it didn't also explore was the, you know, the energetic cost of that. Whereas then you can go to other studies that say like, okay, well, we were, we reduced vertical loading rate with a 10% increase in this person's stride frequency. Um, you know, and that, what that would be with, you know, taking somebody at 164 or something and moving them up to 180. Um, but you know, then you go to another paper that's like this, you know, we increase somebody's step frequency by 10% and we were measuring oxygen consumption. We saw that they become, you know, they started using more oxygen. Right, they're less speed. efficient. Exactly. Yep. So it's like, then you put those two together and it's like, well, okay, so you, decrease vertical loading rate but you also made somebody you know more inefficient so they're going to fatigue more quickly right so kind of you know adding those there are yeah different pieces all together that you have to put together so let's talk a little bit about what you and your co-investigators found so if i remember correctly the the kind of the average stride rate when you looked across these 50 competitors or so did center right around 180 but i think the interesting one of the interesting takeaways was just the degree of variability from uh, kind of the, the, I don't want to say slower, but the, the less uh, frequent or the lower cadence people up to the, the higher cadence people, you know, despite changes in pace or fatigue or anything like that, the variability was, was quite wide. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, kind of went back to that notion of, of each runner having, you know, a signature. Um, right. You know, one of the things that I mentioned in that article um, to Alex was this, you know, the, the runners, the lowest, lowest stride frequency we found and the highest stride frequency in the males, you know, was, you know, it was like around between 150 and 160 was the lowest and somebody running over 200, um, 205, those guys finished within a couple of minutes of each other. Right. Um, and again, these are all, you know, the top 25 in the race. So they're all very good ultra marathoners. Um, so they're running very close. And the funny thing is, is they're not, they weren't, wildly different one wasn't like you know super 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 short and wasn't one wasn't super super tall um it was just you know one had a very short choppy (laughs) stride right one guy was long and loping um so yeah so it's it i'm sorry going back to that well i was gonna i was gonna say it just speaks to that um that idea that you know there is there is kind of that that population average that you know clustering right around 180 um but that's all that it is, is just an average, you know, an average, 
an average doesn't tell you anything about the individuals used to calculate that average. You know, if you, again, you know, you take the average, the average is kind of anecdote or not anecdote, but um, something I always like to say is you take the, the average of the vis- visible spectrum and it's like 550 nanometers or something like that, mm-hmm. um, which is like bluish green. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if Van Gogh painted Starry Night just with that in his color palette, it would be pretty ugly. <laughs> right. Um, right. So it's the variety, obviously, that, that yeah, exactly. makes it interesting. Yeah, It all makes of. it up. Right, right. Now, another thing that you kind of uh, bore out in there was that the, I guess the cadence didn't vary in relation to fatigue. I mean, the, the main thing that kind of individual runners would vary their cadence was obviously in uh, in relation to velocity. So when they slowed down, obviously their cadence would slow down. But right. if they were running at an equivalent pace later in the race, even when they were theoretically fatigued, their cadence was the same. Yep. So that kind of, I don't want to say disproves, but would speak against this kind of like theory of, of like the ultramarathon shuffle where we kind of uh, increase our cadence and shorten our stride as as we get later and more fatigued into the race. Yeah. And that that was actually one of the things that surprised me because I thought one of the reasons this would be such a beautiful model is it's it really is a nice representation of fatigue because these runners are starting this race fresh and running on running on pavement for six, seven, eight hours. Right. You know, you think that this, this is a, a really nice model to just completely wear down their system and see what goes. And so thought that it would be, you know, a nice parallel to in some ways, you know, the idea of being fatigued from maybe just many, many weeks, months of training on the roads. Like if you're in a heavy training period, it would be a similar phenomenon. So trying to understand that effect on um, cadence and in previous there have been previous studies of, you know, step frequency and ultra marathons and races. Um, and they found later in the race at a given speed, step frequency would decrease or increase. Right. Um, sorry, that is, you know, take shorter steps. Right. There's hypothesized that that was like a protective mechanism. For, but those were done. Right. You look at those studies and they were done one on um, trail racing. Like I think notably, there was a study from UTMB um, a while back, um, doc, group Dr. Marin, J.B. Marin, and um, some others, um, Millet, a uh, group at, uh, in France, did that really cool study there. Um, and they found, yes, this notion that increasing step frequency at, you know, having the runners run at a set, set speed um, before and after the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they even had one checkpoint in one of the studies. It might not have been UTMB. had one during... Um, but I would say there are a couple things going on there that would be different was one, this is recorded, you know, continuously during the race and right. it's, you know, a freely chosen speed. And when I was reading those papers, thinking and comparing, contrasting it to ours, I'm like, well, it also could be that, you know, one, you know, the challenges on your muscle loading patterns are very different for a, a mountain race, you know, where you're just jarring downhill, right. hiking uphill maybe even running with poles some of the time. So I think that that's, it's almost a different maybe type of fatigue rather than just call it road running fatigue. Right. Um, but also, you know, they were having their runners run at a set speed saying 12 kilometers an hour. Um, you run this. I'm thinking, I'm like, well, there could also be like this, you know, some level of neuromuscular fatigue that now you're trying to match, you know, after, after running for 20 hours or mm-hmm. whatever, you're trying to match this speed that they're telling you. Maybe you just take, you know, 
shorter steps to try and achieve that speed definitely you know sure. like your your like muscle a, activation from the yeah, from like the brain from the cns thing. is going to be very different yeah, uh, yeah right when that pace is prescribed for you yep yeah so that's that would be you know so that's going on in in trail races and that's one of the one of the you know very interesting distinctions you know that might even speak to the broader broader differences in you know an ultra marathon even you know on the roads versus on the trails um di- slightly different physical challenge but but yeah so in this like i said in you know if you're looking at the case of road running it was the fatigue mechanism was obviously they're tired they would slow down but you know if legs were dead from tons and tons you know 10 20 30 40 80 90 kilometers of running they're running the same speed it wasn't the step frequency getting shorter so right but one of the fascinating things that I, this was one of the areas in the paper that I can, was most excited about um, or intrigued by was the coefficient of variation. So that is the, the relative standard deviation of their step frequency for each lap did decrease with fatigue. Um, All right. You, you kind of lost me there. You're saying that okay. the variation yeah. for each individual runner uh, yeah. looking from lap to lap. Yep. So say I'm running at 175 steps per minute, clicking along at you know, 620 mile pace or something like that at, on the first lap in the first 10 kilometers. Right. And I have, but that's 175 plus minus seven steps per minute. Okay. In the 80, 90th kilometer and say I'm still running at 620 pace. Okay. And I'm still running at 175 steps per minute, but now I'm plus minus three steps per minute. So the oh so the, your your own personal variability decreased. Yes, exactly. That's interesting. So, so, I would have expected yeah. the opposite as you became more fatigued that your you would have yeah, more so, fluctuation. So I thought it was one of those. I, I thought it would. Well, I I I, I actually I, I had no idea. I, it was like one of those things where I, I could form several different hypotheses on it. It might tighten up right. because it's like a control thing, and you're trying to like you you essentially it's like it's almost like if you can think of you know a variability in your stride um as as having like you know more you know more functions on board or like Mm -hmm. you can think of like driving a spaceship in star wars and you have all these lights of all these like boosters options that you have as you get lower and lower on fatigue all of those are like flashing red and they're gone (laughs) and you only have like your last remaining boosters and can only do one thing okay so So that's kind of like neuromuscular maybe your options are limited basically yes exactly um or like you said it could go the other way where it's like you lose the ability to like really control it and it now opens up so i thought you know both of those could be going on or you know or it could just not change at all (laughs) Um, right so that was one of the things i was excited to explore and what I think actually to me has the most promise for like future investigations or even incorporating it into our Garmin's. Cause this is, I mean, this is analysis I can do on my computer with my own files, but mm-hmm. it'd be cool if Garmin put that in. It'd be fascinating to see, you know, if your watch is taking splits every mile automatically or something, it'd be pretty interesting if it re- you know reported the coefficient of variation of your, um, you know, your cadence to see, you know, if you are fatigued, is it, you know, because in again in these in these runners the races stride frequency didn't change but that variability around it the play changed it right was like they became more and more honed in focused more rigid right um, and that's you're saying that that's keeping pace constant there so that that's an indicator yep. of fatigue that you would see maybe before pace started to drop or something like that yeah yeah exactly 
That's really interesting. So yeah, going forward, I mean, what are some things that you would take away from this study or what's something that, that we could use? Is, is there information that we could use that will help us kind of in our training or just in terms of using these wearable devices, like something that we can look for? I mean, the, like you said, the variability, the coefficient of variability is going to be an interesting one, but that's not something that we're technologically able to do right now, just at, at least on the wrist. So how would you use these, these results or, or knowing what you know now moving forward in terms of your own training or just how you view your own data? Yeah, so I would, would do it exactly uh, to the point that you just said, viewing your own data. <laughs> um, right. Use it as, you know, I think the biggest thing with Cadence that's awesome that, you know, it's on our, on our wrist measuring, telling us is that we can now, you know, gather data on ourselves. One of the things that I wanted to, um, you know, as we were writing up this paper, wanted to get across was this idea that, like, yes, there are some things that determine determine the step frequency you're running at and understanding what those are and why it might change. Mm-hmm. Main thing being speed, you know, speed, your stride frequency does depend on speed. And this is something that I want to, I, I really want people to understand beyond, you know, that, you know, that magic, like 180 number, because this was actually something that I, I came in, in reading the literature, um, you know, previous literature that's been done on, you know, looking at stride frequencies across different speeds and everything. I came to really appreciate that this this notion of a speed dependency got washed out. Um, both it was in the science, you know, in the science and the research, but not widely acknowledged. I think because the magnitude of a cadence increase um, with speed is so much smaller in magnitude as compared to like a stride length increase as you speed up. Right. So a lot of times they'd say like you know, as, you know, as you increase from this, this speed to this speed, like, you know, eight minute pace to six minute pace, there's a 27% increase in stride length, but only a 5% increase in, you know, step frequency or something like that. So, so it was like, it just got paled in comparison. And then it got, and then when like the pop science came in, they just completely washed that out and said like, yeah, basically it doesn't change. That that frequency, frequency. right. That cadence doesn't change with speed and it's all stride length. Yep. But what I came to appreciate was like a very, it's a small, but it's a significant dependency in that if you, I would challenge someone to go out and run at a given speed and changing it even by five steps, you know, per minute mm-hmm. is noticeable. And, and like, for me, I, you know, I, I it's uncomfortable. Right. Um, and it's like, and I came to realize, I'm like, that's really interesting that it's a very, it's a, small but significant dependency that when people are looking at their cadence they should be very aware of that it's not stationary with pace right it is it is it is tied to it by by a few steps per minute you know minutes per mile yeah i've Uh, I've noticed you know when i and i don't pay attention to it all the time but when i do kind of consciously count strides or whatever and mm -hmm. i'm trying if i for whatever reason i'm attempting to increase that cadence a little bit and i do tend to center around the low 180s uh mm-hmm. like you say even bumping it up to maybe the high 180s it comes at a what feels like a fairly significant energy cost yeah and and that's the other thing that's like i think has come in this this idea of like you know practitioners increasing cadence on you know people like out in the field like saying okay like now go you know try running at 180 steps per minute and like you know they look better when they run it's like well yeah i mean maybe if you have them on a treadmill 
like they're constrained with pace. But if anybody does that in the field, you're going to increase your pace doing that, like just out on a run. And that, that could lead to this, this appearance of like more efficiency. But like you said, when you do it and you kind of maintain that pace, it feels it's, it's harder. And it's like, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. Um, so anyways, so, so there's this idea that there are things that affect it. And the other one, obviously being height, you know, we found, and that was, um, that was known. So both of, both of these things that the height and speed relation researchers have, have shown that in the past and this corroborated that. Mm -hmm. And just, we wanted to highlight that, that this is, you know, it's not a one size fits all. Um, but then this notion that, that, you know, we did, you know, when we build in this full model, it was, I mean, it was kind of fascinating that age, you know, age and experience didn't have anything to do with it. That being said, you know, they're, you know, elite level ultra runners. So they're all highly experienced. Right. Exactly. Um, but you, then like, yeah. Yeah. If you took, if you took, um, just, if you compared this data to those with novice or to, to novice runners or novice ultra runners, that would, I, I assume be somewhat different in terms of, you might see some of that kind of variability come back in yeah no i think yeah if you did a if you if you did this you know same study building in you know participants were doing their first you know they're all in ultra for the first time or right. you know even better people were like in their first month of running or something right <laughs> it would be massively different right um, because they they don't have they haven't honed their efficiency yet yes. with with repeated miles and they, they may not have settled on and then also yeah. there there's i mean there's got to be a a relative fitness component to it. I mean, just speaking anecdotally for myself, I know that my cadence when I'm less fit for a given pace is definitely lower than when I'm more fit. Yeah. So this is, this is the other thing that I would say, um, you know, speaking back to this notion of, um, you know, how to use this for yourself and using, using cadence as I like to say, use it as a barometer, you know, Mm -hmm. some sort of this tool to better understand yourself to hone your intuition, not to guide it. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, you know, exact same way when I'm more fit, um, in my, you know, leading up to races, I notice I take a few steps, you know, per minute, fewer, fewer steps per minute than, um, at a given pace. So say I'm, you know, taking a running 620 pace, like in this race, 175 steps per minute. Um, you know, when I'm less fit, like maybe starting a training cycle, that might be higher. That might be 179, 180. To, to be able to hit um, that same pace. Yeah, running that same pace. And what that comes back to, I think, is a level of power in the stride. You know, you're taking a slightly longer stride. Right. Because I've now, you know, maybe I have fresher legs or maybe I'm doing um, uh, uh, more hill repeats, more track work or something like that. I have all that under my belt to really right. drive kind of that longer smoother stride right now you're recru- um, you're recruiting more muscle groups per stride for for the given pace than previously yeah, exactly and then and then flip that this is actually an you know an anecdote here um i'm coming off of an achilles injury right now i'm just getting back into training and i've noticed that i have for a given pace my cadence is actually quite a bit higher um and that's due to i would hypothesize due to two main things one is less mobility range of motion in my ankle mm-hmm. um because of that so i'm taking shorter choppier strides as well as weaker you know weaker calves weaker plantar flexors mm-hmm. um you know so lower power there so end result is taking you know quicker strides that being said i'm not going to then say okay i need to you know 
you know, when I'm at my fittest at this pace, I'm running 175 steps per minute, you know, but right now I'm running 181. So now I'm going to demand of myself that I run 175. No, like that's, right. you shouldn't use it. You know, it's not the, the, um, the end goal. It's just something to see track where you're at, you know, right. where are you getting? Am I now at, you know, the future state yet? <laughs> um, right. It's like, I think cadence is one of those things that follow. It really is of the Bauhaus principle. Um, which is that form follows function. Mm -hmm. So cadence is, um, you know, the form and the function is whatever pace you're running. So cadence is truly something that it shouldn't drive, you know, it shouldn't be the other way around. Right, right. What are your thoughts on some of the newer wearable, not not necessarily the, the stuff on your GPS watch, but like the stride device or some of those other like wearable biomechanical monitors that people are using to kind of correct form imbalances or stuff like that. Do you see any use for those things moving forward in, in terms of this? Um, I mean, I, I, <laughs> Not, I, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position about. Yeah. Anything. I mean, I would say generally I, I, I don't use a, a stride power meter or any of the, you know, those other devices mm-hmm. or, you know, um, like a Lumo or any, well, Lumo is no longer. Um, but, right. uh, I don't, I don't use those and I don't yet, I, I don't really see their utility in running, um, right now. Um, because part of it's like, you know, running our speed is our surrogate, um, for power, you right. know, this notion of power and cycling. It's, it's because they don't have, you know, it, they have so many different, different demands of whether it's like they're, I mean, it's so dependent on things like drag and wind resistance, right. things like that. Um, to normalize the effort, whereas running at pretty much all training paces, it's it's entirely dependent on speed and flat ground running. Obviously, that right. changes on hills. Sure, but it's like if you are so worried about you know quantifying your effort on a hilly run versus a flat run, I I, I don't th- I think that that's like your your effort and worries of of your effort are far better. Um, allocated somewhere else right your right. stress is is better allocated about worrying about optimizing your training or something like that <laughs> right. um that's right what, and and part of it I has was, to be you have to laughing. learn to run by feel right i mean yeah well it's funny i was i was like there was i can't remember um an article that came out about stride power meters a while ago and some exercise scientists were talking about it on twitter and one of them made the comment of like you know i think the best thing you know for running would actually be just some sort of like RPE meter, rating of perceived exertion meter. And I, I laughed out loud when I read that. So I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you know, the human body developed one of those <laughs> I was gonna millions say, isn't of that, years ago. Isn't that called it's a between, brain? Yeah, it's between our ears. <laughs> so I think, you know, learning to listen to your own RPE meter is probably the best thing. Um, that's yeah, great. So, so, yeah, so I think that's, that. you know, for me, the way I use the data that I collect when I run is like I said earlier, use it to hone your intuition, not to guide it. So I collect heart rate data, GPS data, um, you know, obviously cadence data from my, from my wrist. And it's something that I look at after runs, but it's not, I I try not to chase it during a run, just run, run, you know, chase the feel. Um, so and then the data you know, maybe confirms or disproves what your exactly. your own perception was of of how the run went, of how your effort yep. was, and then you you use that moving forward just in terms of now you know for next time feel wise. 
Exactly. Exactly. Now, the one thing that I would actually say with that, I would be interested to explore with something like a a stride power meter or any of those other things. I will, I will add this. I think they do have utility in treadmill running because I think that they could give you a more accurate, um, uh, pace on your, on your treadmill runs. Cause treadmill, treadmill pacing is, you know, for most commercial treadmills is wildly accurate. Oh, I, I don't um, even look, I mean, I, I go completely when I, when I'm on the treadmill, I just ignore what the pace or the distance yeah, is. Exactly. Exactly. So I think if, if somebody really wants to hit specific paces on a treadmill, right. those can actually be a really useful tool for that. The other thing I would say is I haven't explored this, but I think it could be a good application is using, uh, I, I think, I don't know if like the stride ones I think might be put, you just put it on one foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know Garmin has a pod that goes on your waist now. Right. Um, and then there's also another company that does two foot pods. And I think that that, oh, uh, that could be a really interesting opportunity to explore left, right asymmetries. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I mean, that's for a lot more, you know, work and tweaking. I think, again, like I said, I think the biggest, the heaviest hitters that a lot of people can have are, are just worrying about um, tuning, tuning their training and sure. effort, you know, better. <laughs> sure, sure. So where does your research go next? How much more, how long are you still uh, in studies? And, you know, is this kind of the, the, was this a one-off thing or is this kind of the, the focus of what your research is going to be about? It really, it kind of was a one-off-ish thing. Um, my, my research is on, you know, bi- biomechanics of distance running. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I took this underway before I had figured out really what my dissertation was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, it's not, it probably won't be in my thesis, but it is in, um, I mean, it is in the category of work of just studying, using elite athletes as models to understand running phenomena, which right. I think is, is in itself, um, you know, something I, I want to keep, keep pushing and pursuing. Um, not just, I mean, not just cause it's fun to <laughs> look at elite athletes and study them, but I love. I love high performing athletes as a model of, um, you know, there's this notion of self-optimization, but I think elite athletes are really a good Darwinian model of, you know, mechanical and biological phenomenon because they have been subjected to those, you know, the forces of evolution that is competitive pressure um, to survive and optimize for the task. So in many ways, for the same reasons that we conduct comparative biology and comparative physiology, experiments i think those same reasons apply to elite runners and so that's something that like with this but my run you know my work right now is actually using uh i think i probably have somewhere around another another year left or so (laughs) (laughs) um uh but using the spring mass model of running um as as kind of a template to study runner especially elite runners and use that to um kind of come up with new methods to apply that to runners to study, you know, how they bounce along differently between populations, um, you know, different levels of ability, different speeds, stuff like that. Right. Um, yeah. So like right now, one of the studies that's kind of ongoing, so I'm coining it, the biomechanics of the sub four minute mile. So we have getting guys who have run under four minutes and girls who have run under four thirty six, mm-hmm. which is um, about the equivalent, um, studying their mechanics energetics at a variety of paces um to really understand you know really paint that kind of comprehensive picture because oddly enough there really there's only ever been i would say one really good comprehensive biomechanical study of elite distance runners and those long distance runners done back in the 80s 
Um, so kind of using this to fill that out for middle distance runners, mm-hmm. but then also applying some of these techniques that I'm developing um, to study their bouncing characteristics. <laughs> mm. Very cool. So, and yeah. that's got to so have a lot of, uh, there's got to be a lot of anthropomorphic variability based into that. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. One of the things that measuring is, you know, body dimensions and things like that. Right. Um, but it is, you know, it is actually interesting when you look at like the, um, just, you know, on the subject of cadence in these guys, the speed dependency in the middle distance runners. And this maybe goes back to that notion of having that you know, power in your stride, the speed dependency in them is even bigger than quite a bit bigger than in these ultra runners, i.e. when they, as they move across the spectrum of paces, they have huge swings in their cadence, hmm. which I think, which totally makes sense when you think of, a, you know, that middle distance runner as that kind of like, call them a powerful bouncer, you know, like right. just popping along. Um, so you can really see as they speed up their, you know, they take that, their cadence changes quite a bit. Right, so. right. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you took that out to the extreme and looked at uh, sprinters, you, you'd yep. see kind of, you'd see it even probably more pronounced. Uh, yeah, both yeah, cadence yeah. and stride length, I would think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about your own running because I, I think I don't I don't know that a lot of people who follow the you know other than those who follow the sport very religiously. Uh, I don't know that a lot of people know who you are or, or what you've done. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's because you're kind of a road-focused guy at this point. But um, you've been doing this for a little while, and you've had quite a bit of success on the world stage. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your experiences at the World Championships the last couple times around. What's it like representing Team USA, and what's the atmosphere when you get to these big international road races where I think, I, I, you know, in, in the U.S., for the people who follow the sport, I think we're, we're, you know, many people are focused on the trail aspect and they know kind of how those kind of things go off. But I, I don't think they understand a lot of folks how the dynamics of these big international road races are, especially when you get over to Europe and see how important they are to those guys over there. Yeah, it's um, I, I'm head over heels in love with it. it. It really is. I mean, I think in many ways the like the road ultra marathons at least for me feel feel very much like what i imagine maybe what the marathon feels like for some other people in terms of the dynamics of how you how you navigate the race personally how you manage it and race it but it really is in representing usa in the you know in the international competitions is i mean it's to say it's you know, it's a tired cliche to say it's an honor but it right. truly is I, I can't express the depth of like pride that I have every time. I mean, the first time I put on a USA vest, like in the couple hours before the race, I have my warm ups on. I was seeing my hotel room. I was, you know, I was tearing up. And in, <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's like you're like overcome with this, like, just again, sense of purpose. And it really is, it's cool because it's like, this is, this is my talent and, or, you know, my, you know, my gift or my path and getting to use that to best, to, to best honor our country or to, you know, to represent it in the sense that you are an ambassador, that you are a, you are a representation of what your country can do in this field. Um, so to be that, that voice, that pair of legs to speak for us, um, is truly, 
you know, I, I don't take that lightly. And it's why at the past, you know, every, every championship I've run in is like, it, it is the end all be all for me because I have to do absolutely right by our country, um, for the team. And that's the other cool thing that I will add the international races, um, they're scored. They have a team score component, which is just so beautiful. Like I wish it's like, why in the, why in the Olympics, why don't they have a team score in the marathon? You right. know, like, it's so cool that, you know, they sum the top three times from the race. So there's this idea that like when you're racing, you know, you are, you obviously want to do the best for yourself, but then there is just this huge weight on you. That's like, you have to maximize every single minute of the right. race. Um, right. Because, every second counts in, in that team competition for sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, this year we were off the podium by a couple minutes to Germany, right. a couple minutes, you know, over, over uh, you 18, know, 19, 20 guys. hours total. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, in, a, in, in an ultra marathon, a couple of minutes is a lapse of focus, you know, later right. in the race. Um, so, so having that dynamic is so, so fun and so cool. Yeah. Um, you look at, you look at the 24 hour champs. I mean, those team competitions come down to, to, you know, meters, uh, you know, it's laps on the track at the most sometimes, yeah. uh, totaling so, up three or four of these, of these performances. Yeah. So there, there's that dynamic that that's really incredible. Um, so yeah, so it's truly something that I. I pride myself in, in preparing well and, and doing the best that I can for us and for our country. Um, but it's also a really cool opportunity. I mean, you know, to con- you know, I connect with so many friends from now other federations. Um, so it's, it's awesome. And I also, I, this might repulse some people, but you know, looped courses like that. Yeah. I, I adore, I love racing. I love loop courses that. too. Yeah, because for me, what happens is everything fades away. The, like the terrain, everything fades away. You're not distracted. You're solely focused on racing. Um, That's so exactly it's right. Like, yeah, so it's like, I mean, I'm not going to call it like a NASCAR race, but maybe like a Formula One race. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. I've, I've liked loop courses for a while. And, you know, that my first 24 hour, which was at North Coast um, uh-huh. a couple of years ago, which is, you know, a, just just about a mile loop or so. Yeah. And yeah. I, I remember thinking during at points during the race, just like where I would I would I was so locked in uh, and it was, you know, I'm, I'm not like a spiritual or a Zen runner or anything like that. Uh-huh. That's not why I'm in the sport or anything. But it, it was very much like you say, everything else was stripped down and just the 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 lack of variation and, and just knowing exactly what each next step was going to be it was yeah. it was like the most mindful i've ever been in terms of being in the present and just being able to lock in and just being about you know that particular task like all i'm doing right now is moving around this this loop it was fantastic yep exactly that's that's exactly how i feel um and it's it's actually cuz <laughs> To me, I, I always tell people that one of the reasons I love, you know, I I absolutely adore road ultra marathons and can't I I love running on trails, but I just hate racing on them. Mm-hmm. It's because like say my mind is exceptionally powerful when working in series and utterly disastrous when asked to work in parallel. <laughs> and I think running on trails, your mind is constantly in parallel. You're doing, you're not only worrying about how fast you're going, where, you know, where you're going, the race, like people in front of you, behind you, modulating pace, constantly changing everything, but you're worried about your surroundings and you have just, it's like sensory overload. For right. Me. Whereas on the roads, it's, I'm in series. All I have to do is think about what's in front of me, what I have to do, not worrying about 
terrain course, anything like that, just racing. Um, and I don't think there's not a right or wrong answer. Like it's different people are suited to the task differently, but I've found, I've found, like you said, that I'm (laughs) suited to that. And it's funny you say that, 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 like you said, you know, I knew exactly what, you know, each next step was going to be took me back to the the study thinking about that decrease in coefficient of variation. I'm like, I wonder if that's what's going on is like right. the, you run a looped course and you become more confident in each step. That's interesting. <laughs> it becomes ingrained. Right, right, um, right. Right. But, but yeah, so that's, that's what, you know, like I said, I, I stick, I stick to the roads because to me it, it feels much more like an extension of, um, road racing and the marathon like i i train my my training is extremely similar to you know training for a marathon um i would say three weeks out from a race i can probably um you know take a left turn and run the ultra take a right turn and you know go race a marathon or something like that um so so yeah so i i like it from that that standpoint and then also you know the, the other big race on my schedule is i did it for the first time last year, but is something I've romanced over for a long time and will hopefully be continuing to nail down the next, you know, coming years as comrades. Mm-hmm. And that race is something that like you, it's like uh, people know about it in the ultra world here, I think, but you like, no, I don't know if anybody here really understands it until you go do it and you see it and realize it is, it is so much bigger than, the entire sport of ultra running in the United States. Right. But also I think it, it really is an event that transcends the sport of running and maybe even sport when you get to South Africa, where it's like this race, this race is in itself an entire sporting event. Like just this one race when you have, you know, you have 20,000 people lining up to do a 90 kilometer 80 or 56 mile race. Right. Not just that many people racing it, but then you have 500 plus thousand people out on the course. It's a, it's a national event, this race going on. And so what ends up happening then is millions and millions of people watching on TV. It's just even not racing it. It's beautiful drama in itself. It just plays out over, you know, six, seven hours for the elite race. And it's just, just this brutal course that just has these, you know, operatic rises and falls that, that it's, you know, just a phenomenal event that obviously that, the country of South Africa is head over heels in love with it. And, and anybody who goes and runs it like is immediately like, Oh wow. Oh yeah. wow. <laughs> like, like you say, it's, it's more than just a sporting event there. It's, it's a cultural event. It's a, I mean, it's, I, I think not having been there, but having like heard people like yourself and, and others talk about it and, and see some of the coverage. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the Boston marathon, it's what the Boston marathon is to the city of Boston or what the New York marathon is to New York for that day where, Really, you walk around the the city of New York, even not just adjacent to the marathon, but that's what people are talking about. That's what people are thinking about, and it's just in kind of the cultural consciousness. And I think that's that's you know not something that we get to experience in in ultra running, but I think that's where it happens. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's fun, like to have to have as they say over there, to be able to be at the pointy end of the race. Right. Um, has you know, last year was was just a it was an insane thrill. Um, and you know, future years will hopefully try and improve on that. But, um, but yeah, so that's what I, I, like I said, I, that's kind of why with the roads, that's where I find myself just at, at my best and, and yeah, looking in in future years to kind of just keep, 
keep chipping away and and you know slowly but surely hopefully make a name for myself yeah so what are <laughs> but, your plans for 2019 are you going to comrades yeah so comrades is the big star on the schedule in the first half mm-hmm. um i'm trying trying to figure out now what what the spring will look like um if i want to do whether it's the 100k champs maybe in preparation Mm -hmm. um as just kind of like a long training run Mm -hmm. or even the 50k um do that as as a good race um was originally thinking about doing the 50k championships on the road um but i'm not not sure if I'm, i'm just getting back like i said had an achilles tweak that took a lot longer to heal than i thought it would right um not sure if i'll be prepared in time for that but so hopefully 50k or 100k in the kind of middle of the spring um maybe a road marathon but then comrades all you know all sites set on comrades and then then the fall not entirely haven't picked out exactly what i want to do yet if it'll be gear hard for a marathon or try and find either a fast 50 mile or 100k race like i was going to do jfk this year and ended up the Achilles thing happened literally a few days before the race, like just a freak accident on a. Um, oh, that's too bad because there was some good competition there this year. Yeah, I was, I was, I was really bummed. I was, I was quite happy with my fitness going into the race and really excited to race, like with the cancellation of North Face and having Zach Miller. Yep. You know, and Jared. Late yep. ad, and then Jared was going to be there. I was so pumped because I don't like as a road guy. I never get to race the, those people who are. Right the what you know the people that everybody knows in the sport here so it's like it's like that that one hybrid crossover chance to, right to get to tango oh that would have been um, exciting yeah it was actually really it was a really because i went so i had all the plans to go out there so i ended up going out even you know after i'd gotten injured just to watch and ultra was a title sponsor of it so go and help them out with you know brand stuff um but getting it was it was a fast like just a strange experience to watch the race unfold that you had been like mentally preparing to be part of for right. so long. So I'd been, you know, visualizing this and imagining how things would play out and how I'd be doing it diff- things at different points in the race. And then all of a sudden to be like cut from that, but now to like have this <laughs> weird kind of like looking down view right. on the race. It was, it was a, it was kind of cool because it was, I mean, it was, there's on one end like very frustrating, but on the other end, it was a it was a really good educational experience for me as a racer because it was like okay, I had all these hypotheses of how I was would have done things or how they would have they they'd be doing things, and now I get to like almost watch that play out behind a glass box, wow. you know, from above. Yeah. Um. So it was, it was it was a very interesting educational experience. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so hopefully maybe do that, maybe do that race, maybe do a um, different one. But. Well, I, I'm thinking about, I'd, I'd love to go back and do JFK. I'm thinking about doing it this fall. So, uh, I'd be psyched to see you there, but I'll tell you what I really want to see this fall or at some point in the near future. I want to see you, Pat, Jim, and I don't know, maybe Tyler German and a couple other people on the track for a crack at the 50 mile world record. That I, That's what I want to see. I would. I love that you want to see that. And I also would love to see that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, this is something I've also toyed with is like, maybe I should go and gun for desert solstice. Cause I think, I think I could, I, I, the track, like racing a track ultra might just be my jam. Right. Um, 
So that's, that's a, there's a non-zero probability of, of that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it's going to take to get the, the feel that you need. I mean, that record is incredibly stout and it's been around for God knows how long, 35 yeah. years at this point. But, yeah. but I mean, you've, you've soloed, you've pretty much soloed uh, 50 miles in 510. And I think you've even split 50 miles faster than that in your 100Ks, right? I mean, you've been in the low yeah. fives. So, yeah, it was 50502 in the 100k championship. Jesus. Um, so, so I mean you got 10 more minutes, which is not nothing or 12 minutes, but Yeah, and I definitely think I've, I I I know 100% this year both before Comrades and before the World 100k Championships and even maybe before JFK, I was in light years better shape, not light years. I was in better shape than I was before that 100k. I I know I could run low 450s for the right. 50 mile at that point. Um but you, so, I mean, but I mean, you couldn't solo it, right? You'd need three or four other guys who were at least running twenty to thirty miles with you. Yeah, uh, I yes, that would that would make it easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you can make the counter argument like um, uh, Bruce Fordyce soloed it when he did it in Chicago. Um, I guess, and, yeah. I mean, uh, it, yeah, and, and um, uh, Bern Heinrich uh, when he ran. There's you know, Barney Klecker, um, did right? Four fifty two or four fifty one, yeah. And those those yeah, are solo yeah. efforts. I mean, I Though guess I think, part of I it is. Barney, I'm sorry, I think Barney might have actually had some competition early in the race. It was either Barney, I don't think Bruce did, but one of them had had early competition or like people who went out for ten or twenty miles, like far faster than they should have, and like right, got right, the right. pace going nicely. Um, but yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, if we if to have competition in a race like that would be unprecedented and awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, that, I think, Oh God, I, I, I would love to see that. That would be so great. Yeah. And it would, I mean, to be on a track too, would be really cool. Cause I think I've been, you know, I actually just read Don Ritchie's book um, and came, you know, started studying up on some of the older, also read um, uh, Ted Corbett's and getting into like track, track ultras were, were something that for me, never having dove into them, you know, much before always kind of wrote it off, off as just this like strange masochistic exercise. <laughs> um, but came to really realize they are really kind of beautiful races in themselves because the momentum swings in them happen so like, albeit slowly, but visibly in the sense right. that you could have a guy, you know, who's a half mile ahead that guy, you know, say one guy is in first place, guy's second place. You might be a full mile ahead, four laps apart, but all of a sudden they're running together and right. they start running together for a mile. And you look at it and you're like, huh, they're, you know, a mile apart in the race, but they're running the same pace. Then the other guy pulls ahead and it's like, you can start to see the unwinding right. so much faster. So it's like this drama plays out in just spectacular form in just a very strange, beautiful closed setting. So to see, I mean, to see that at like a high level of like, get a good group of guys to do that could be just a like fantastically entertaining event. It would be amazing. It would. And, and yeah, like you say, the track is just the purest form. It would be, yeah. it would be so great. Well, we'll, yeah. we'll keep our fingers crossed. Maybe ultra will put up a, a prize purse to the first yeah. person to break that. And we'll, I, like, I like the sounds of that. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Jeff, before I let you go, we have to play the stupid game that I play with everybody who comes on the show called desert Island picks, uh, which okay. is, I'm going to send you to a desert Island for a year and okay. you're going to have to tell me what you're bringing on the desert island. You can bring one book, 
one album, one meal, and one beer. What are you bringing to okay. a desert island? Desert. Um, what type of desert island is it? Are we talking like Caribbean or like like Baltic Sea? <laughs> hot um, weather i've always pictured it as a hot weather okay, yes you're okay, you're cool. uh caribbean that type be, island but you're by easier. you're by yourself that would be easier this was going to influence the the meal and beverage choice. yes um, a lot of people okay. have played it that way yeah go ahead yeah um so book definitely the brothers karmasov um cool it is objectively the greatest book ever written um <laughs> elliot rosewater said it in slaughterhouse five um, everything you need to know about life is in the Brothers Karmasov. Um, yeah, so I'd bring Bros K, um, Prevere and Volokonsky translation, obviously. Um, of course. <laughs> and uh, album. Yep. Uh, I would go with, I think, um, Born to Run by Springsteen. Oh, excellent. Yeah, not at all you know, related to the, the notion of, of running, but that that is truly an album that I think has, it's an album that speaks to like, hope and longing for escape but mm-hmm. also like the empowerment to do so mm-hmm. and i think that that would really get you through a year on a desert island well you know this idea of like you know you got just like waxing in the middle of in the middle of your year stint to like you know the sax funnel and jungle land That's... and then like at the end you can think of like i can think of standing on the beach and like thinking like this is an island for losers and I'm pulling out of here to win. Like <laughs> that's the perfect, that's, that's the perfect distillation of what that album is. It's, it's like you say, it's, it's the hope of escape and also, right. Like finally seeing a path out. It's, it walks the line perfectly between, you know, his early stuff, which is basically just like, I got to get that fuck out of here. And his yeah. later stuff, which is like, I'm kind of just stuck here. You know, yeah. it, it perfectly blends like that just aspirational hope mixed with like the despair of just having <laughs> having it had go go wrong oh are you yeah. a springsteen a springsteen fan because yeah. you're, you're yes. totally speaking my language here yes i i i can i can thank my parents for that i i think i i knew the entire bruce springsteen canon probably before i could even like speak words oh that's so good <laughs> so I've, it was one of those things where i grew up knowing and loving it before i even knew you know what it was about it and then then once you, it's like, once you get into late adolescence, you, you come back to it and you start to realize just the, the just brilliance, the brilliance of, of it. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. It's um, not my favorite so, Springsteen album, but that's a, that's a perfect, a perfect one to bring. That's, yeah. I love that. What's your favorite Springsteen album? Oh, uh, Wild and the Innocent. That's, it's nice. It, that's I, awesome. I mean, okay. it just perfect. And, and honestly, you could take probably the top five outtakes from wild and the innocent. And that would probably be like my third favorite Springsteen album. Really? I mean, yeah, oh wow. God, yeah. 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 Okay. Deep but, uh, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. All right. Um, nice. and then yes, meal, meal. tamales for sure. hundred <laughs> nice. percent. Um, best food. Um, it's like, I always tell people, I think tamales are the perfect food. It's like the Mayans invented hot pockets like 4,000 <laughs> years ago. Um, so uh, definitely just a year's worth of tamales the the beef the trader joe's beef frozen tamales might be the greatest food on the planet so <laughs> if you gave me just like a thousand of that well no quite a bit more than a thousand yeah you'd need more than three um, a day All yeah right. um, maybe we'll fly yeah, them out so, there in bulk yep tamales for sure and, and then, one beer so i'm not a beer drinker i'm i'm a, a passionate consumer of wine though okay um so if i could make a quick change to that yeah, sure um 
fermented grapes. I think I would go with. I mean, it couldn't be anything what's... too heavy on a desert island. You don't want like. Well, a... well I was going to ask, what, what's the budget? Who's flipping the bill for this? Oh, I mean, <laughs> look, if, if you're going to be there for a year, uh, I'll flip I'll flip the bill for everything. You know, you're, you're going to be good enough oh, to be there for okay. a year. Well, you can yeah. have whatever budget you want. Oh, oh, whatever budget. Chateau Lafitte, okay. whatever it is. Well, well, I was thinking, so I was thinking like Desert Island, a port would actually be really nice. Um, really? Because, oh, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a little bit sweeter. I, you know, I'd have to keep it maybe under some rocks in the shade to keep it at, you know, proper temperature. Okay. Um, but you know, that's why I can't believe people would choose beer thinking about like, I mean, unless you have refrigeration on the island, I think we can nightmare. Yeah. I mean, right. I I think most Um, people are assuming it will not be room temperature at least. (laughs) Um, Yeah. No. uh, So anyways, I think port would be nice just because it's like some point that the sweetness of it would be a a nice thing to have, I think, on a desert island to get you through, you know, overly white wine. It'd have to be cold. It would be refreshing, but. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. I mean, I'm not a huge wine guy, but I would have said like a nice dry white. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking port that's cause that's, I also is one of my just absolute favorite beverages, but I'm thinking like, if you're flipping the bill, I'm going to go maybe a like single vintage Taylor's, which, you know, thinking maybe 1963. Okay. Um, <laughs> if I can get like 50 bottles of that, <laughs> um, uh, that, that or a Maserati, um, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe something more practical. I, I actually think just a very actually simple deeper ruby port would be really nice. Just those like bright red sweet fruit to okay. just while you're stuck on the beach chilling would go really nice. Another good thing about port too is you could let it sit out and have some of the um you know, get get some native yeasts to turn that ethanol into acetic acid. So you have a nice vinegar and you could make salsa with your tamales. Wow. So that's go, that's go, multitasking. Could, could, that's fantastic. Exactly. Port can serve two purposes. <laughs> make a nice make a nice port reduction over the campfire. <laughs> this for, is, for, my like beef, for my beef tamales. Survivor gourmet. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's I would do not do nothing less. <laughs> Jeff, thanks yeah. so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was uh, this was really, really informative and um, I think people will get a lot out of your your paper and hopefully your research moving forward good luck with that and good luck with comrades and everything else we'll be following along be really exciting awesome well it was an absolute joy and pleasure to talk to you jason and hopefully we do um cross paths sometime soon that'd be awesome everyone else thanks for listening thank you to jeff and everyone who has been downloading the show and everything else keep listening keep reviewing keep rating the podcast and until next time in the pain cave keep putting one foot in front of the other Years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded like a good old pair of jeans. Rusted like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain. But long ago, as a child, I look about the night sky and wild wonder man. And ride the bus and feel upset to think of all the years I'd have to go through there. I was still young. I was still young.